0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Romans chapter 8. This is not 26 through 39. That is my typo. Um, This is 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. We are, we've been in Romans for a long time, and we've got a long time to go. But we're, ending, we're, we're en- nearing the end of a section. Romans 6 through 8 is one section of Romans, and then 9 through 11 and 12 through 15. And 1 through 5 was um, really the guts of the gospel and what, what has been done for us in the gospel. Romans 6 through 8 is what he's doing in us right now um, through the gospel. 9 through 11 is a little bit of an interlude, and then 12 through 15 is the section where he tells you what do you do now in light of the gospel. And this 6 through 8 section, particularly 7 and 8, like preaching through this the last few weeks, I don't don't listen to classical music very much. I tried to once. I thought it'd be cool to listen to classical music, you know, like kind of dignified to listen to, to classical music, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't get into it. Um, I I did this week as I was thinking about that, like I listened enough to know that in classical music there are crescendos where, and it's emotional, you know, it builds up and there's a crescendo and then there's a decrescendo where you come off of that. And and the one piece of classical music that I could probably recognize is the 1812 Overture. And it's probably because it has canons at the end of it. And I think that's pretty cool. And And I thought that I heard it in the Bugs Bunny video because that's where I've heard most of my classical music because I listened to a lot of Bugs Bunny, or I watched a lot of Bugs Bunny. So did my kids, everyone should, but that turned out not to be the 1812 Overture, but the William Tell Overture. And so then I looked up the 1812 Overture because it was Wednesday, and Wednesday is my sermon prep day where I'm begging to be distracted. And so this was a good one uh, that was fruitful and productive. And the 1812 Overture was written about the... um, uh, Napoleon invading Russia and so you get to the end of it and there is a, a portion towards the end of it where there's a crescendo followed by a day crescendo and what they do is they take the rush or the French national anthem and it's the French coming against the Russians in some town in Russia and it goes up and it, it and so it's If you know the French national anthem, it kind of builds up, and then there's a Russian folk anthem that comes up against it, and then there's a French national anthem, but then it kind of fades off into the distance, and so it represents the battle between the Russians and the French. You learn something new every day, and that was Wednesday, and I thought that was super cool, you know? And then it builds back up at the end with... with the canons. Now, if Romans in this section was a piece of classical music, when you get to the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, you would be at a crescendo. You would be at this place of intensity, um, and then the rest of chapter 8 feels like a, like a day crescendo, like you're coming off of a mountain. The tension builds to this point, and then comes, you're like, what just happened? And that's where we've been in chapter, in chapter 8. I feel like it's a little bit like Um, diffusing a bomb. So there was a movie that came out a few years ago, and I cannot, someone's going to remember the name of this movie. But it was a guy, I think in Iraq, that diffused IEDs. That was his job. The what? The Hurt Locker. Locker. Yes, The Hurt Locker. And uh, and that's anytime you get in one of the show or a movie where someone's diffusing a bomb, especially a whole movie where this guy's life is diffusing bombs, like there's a lot of tension in that. And I thought Romans is a little bit like like that because Romans is like telling you your life is a bomb and at first you're like there's no bomb I don't know what you're talking about I got nothing to worry about and then you're like okay maybe there's a bomb but I can fix the bomb and then you're like okay I can't fix the bomb Jesus can help me fix the bomb but let's get it done so I can move on with my life and then Romans gets to like you don't you don't get it Um, because it's going to take longer than you thought it would and more work than you thought it would, and you need more help than you thought you did, then Jesus is saying, you need to just give your life to me at the end of that. You're not taking it back, because you being in control of your life is the bomb. Like, that's the bomb that he needs to defuse. I remember this quote from, uh, from Ray Bradbury, who wrote Fahrenheit 451. Did I have that right? Okay. I don't listen to classical music, I'm also not really up on classical literature. I don't know if that'd be classical, but I had to read it in class at some point. And so this guy knew what he was doing, but since that's why the quote struck me, he said, every morning I jump out of bed and step on a landmine. The landmine is me. After the explosion, I spend the rest of the day putting the pieces back together. And so this is where Paul gets to at the end of Romans 7 when he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? I can't fix it. And then... Um, and then the bomb either explodes or is diffused, however you want to look at it, at the beginning of chapter 8, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has fixed it, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the thing you needed to know, the thing that will change your life, the emotional key within the gospel, and um, that sermon is worth going back and listening to. Like, you are not condemned, And instead, in fact, because of Christ, you are affirmed like this is, you know, the the essence of the gospel is that he has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. You don't need to prove yourself anymore. You don't need to prove yourself to God because Jesus has stood in your place. You don't need to prove yourself to others because the reason that you're trying so desperately to prove yourself to others is because you're lacking the affirmation from God that the gospel puts back in place. And so you don't need to prove yourself to others. You don't need to prove yourself to yourself. And that sermon, that passage leaves this kind of a giant void of what would I do if I wasn't trying to prove myself constantly because I'm trying to prove myself constantly. Uh, He goes after that. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Like there's a new freedom in the gospel. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And that's what What we've been trying to do and trying to prove ourselves, he did what the law, any law, God's law, the laws around us couldn't do um, by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us and leans into this idea that he's making us, he's making us who we're meant to be, he's making us like Jesus. The righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Because in Christ, because of what Christ has done, because Christ died for our sins and lived the life that we were meant to live and now promises to live that life through us because of Him, we have not just no condemnation, but we have the affirmation of our Father who's in heaven. And when He looks at you, He sees the you that He made in His image, and He sees His Son in whom He's well pleased. And so that's what you have now. And so that transition between chapter 7 and chapter 8 is the crescendo it's like the bomb being diffused i thought it's like a it's like a roller coaster where at the beginning of a roller coaster you've got the one big hill that you climb you know and then you come down off the top of it and that's what the beginning of, of chapter 8 is And the rest of eight is kind of the ride where you go down and you go up and then you do the loop-de-loop. And so the rest of eight, he says, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you to make you who you're supposed to be. It's going to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in you, conform you to the image of Christ. Um, But he also says that the spirit, by the spirit, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. So you're kind of going back uphill, but then he says, don't worry because you've been adopted into the family of God. So you never have to worry about going back to chapter 7. Um, but it's not going to get fixed all at once and you'll have to suffer and deal with sin in your life and the lives of the r- around you and the world you live in because um, Jesus entered into the world to suffer in order to deal with that sin and so you're going to be like Jesus now and so that is like going uphill a little bit but then he said it's like having a baby and all the pain's going to be worth it because babies are awesome and they make you forget about the pain and God's made you for a glory that's going to make you forget about all of it. So the whole chapter feels to me like a roller coaster and at the end of it, Um, I'm exhausted. One pastor summarized where this has taken us in this way. He said, the indwelling spirit gives us joy, the coming glory gives us hope, but the interim suspense gives us pain. And I thought that's pretty accurate. He suggested that we end up in this place of consistently praying, God, give us a patient eagerness and an eager patience. As we wait for your promises to be fulfilled. I thought about the line from Philippians where Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And thinking, like I think that's what I've felt the last few weeks. Coming out of no condemnation and into these twists and turns. And like leaning into Christ in new ways and finding um, contentment. Uh, but he gets to the end of chapter 8, and it's like he starts saying over and over again, hey, I know this is exhausting, but God loves you, and God is in control, and you can trust him. So this little passage for today starts, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray. We don't know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So last week um, there was mention of groanings. We were groaning. Um, the creation groaned with us. Here it's the Spirit groaning on our behalf. Again, that makes sense to me because I feel exhausted coming to the end of this chapter, uh, and and it groans for us when we don't know how to pray um, what we ought. So. If I asked, if I asked you, if I did a survey of like what the thing is in your spiritual life that you need to work on the most, the thing that you're the worst at, um, you know, the, the the spiritual practice in your walk with Jesus that you don't do enough, I would guess 80 to 90 percent of us would say uh, prayer is something that we're just not good at. Prayer hard for us. Uh, prayer should be our first resort like when things are not going well and when they are. Um, Our first thought should be, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, If God created everything, he created a trillion galaxies so we know how big he is and and put us in the corner of one of these tiny galaxies. If, If God created the miracles that are our bodies and all the systems that work perfectly together so we can be here having this conversation. If God made trees to breathe in, or breathe out what we breathe in, and, and for us to breathe out what trees breathe in. If God created love and beauty and wonder, and then God redeemed all of that by the work of Christ, then whatever our problems are, we might want to ask him for help, because he probably has the power to fix that too. You know, it's worth a shot. Uh, but often, too often, we don't, um, or we wait, and he's our last resort. Um, and I think, for me, and probably for you, that's for a number of reasons. One, it's not clear enough how prayer works. Um, you know a lot of times, I think God's probably got bigger fish to fry than than what I got going on, so I don't want to bother him. um sometimes it just seems like he doesn't intercede enough in the courts of course of events or or obviously enough and and I wonder like. Is he gonna answer, or is he gonna answer the way that I want him to answer, or the way that he's supposed to answer? And so I just try and see if I can control things first. So often prayer is a last resort anyway. Um, this passage takes it a step further and says it's not only when you decide to pray, but when you pray and you don't even know what to pray, that's another level of desperation. Like this is a, a real point of exhaustion. And so when he says likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we don't know what to pray as we ought. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then he adds, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I don't know know what this is in your life where you don't even know what to pray. But he wants to be there. And he already is there. And whatever that is, is overwhelming. But even when you're overwhelmed, the Spirit of God is with you and has you. In this line, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Will of God. We are never without hope and never without help. I'm going to ask you for a minute to to close your eyes, to bow your heads, I'm pretty confident that most all of us have some area of our life that is overwhelming to us. And I want you to just take a minute and bring that area to the Lord. And, um, and as this passage says, you probably don't even know how to pray. You probably just bring it to Him and say, I don't know how to pray. And I'm going to trust that this verse is true and the Spirit is going to intercede with groanings too deep for words for each of us. So take a minute and do that now. It's into these spaces that paul gives us one of the most quoted verses of the bible and it's quoted often for good reason it's it's as phenomenal a promise as you'll get in scripture he says and we know for that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose and he speaks that into this desperate place where we didn't even know how to pray and that context matters um, because oftentimes this verse is on a plaque or on a meme, and it's cheerier than is helpful. It's got flowers or maybe butterflies, you know? And there's reason to be cheery or hopeful because it's such a great promise. But when you often, often when you need this verse the most, you, you aren't in the mood for butterflies. Like something has gone bad and you're trying to figure out where God is in it. So I'm going to spend a few minutes just going through this verse piece by piece, um, starting with this, God is at work. God is at work. So we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In the translation that I use, the, um, the ESV, it doesn't kind of, it doesn't word it that way, but it also Like, there's no implication here that all things magically work together. God is the one that is working them together. In a more literal version of this, we know that for those who love God, he is working. In the New American Standard version, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. So God is the primary actor. He is the one that is causing things to work together for the good of those who love God. Um, In the slow day-to-day... Whatever it is you just prayed about, it can be hard to see and easy to forget that God is at work anywhere. And in those moments, those are the moments when we grab the reins, and the reason that we don't pray more often is that we aren't convinced that this is true, that God is at work in these situations. So I'm just going to skip around a few stories in the Bible that are like go-to stories for me um, that I need from time to time, where it's just plain and obvious that God is at work. Uh, one of them is in 1 Kings, or 2 Kings chapter 19. It's a situation where um, the Israelites are coming to, to the point where God's going to take them into exile to Syria and to um, Babylon. And Hezekiah is the king, and Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. And he, said, he sends an official to Jerusalem, um, and I don't, it doesn't say his name, it says his title. And his title is the Rabshakeh, which is a great title. If I ever had a title... I would rather be a Rabshaka than a pastor. Like, Rabshakeh just sounds like a cool title to have on a business card or something. Like, so this guy comes, and he has given them the business and says, uh, says to him, Don't let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And why is it that you think you'll be delivered? He goes on for a while, and Hezekiah prays to the Lord And says, Incline your ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kings of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And it may be the clearest answer to prayer, or as clear as there is in Scripture. It says, Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you've prayed to me about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria... I have heard you. Because you prayed to me, I've heard you. That should go without saying, but sometimes I need someone to say it. Like, I need to hear it. I think about um, our kids, more so in younger days, but probably in different ways, like in the expectance with which kids can think that their parents are just going to do something. Like, uh, why didn't you make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Because you didn't ask for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, I shouldn't have to ask for a peanut butter. You should just give it to me. And feeling like we are children sometimes coming to the Lord saying, why didn't you do that thing? And God's probably just sitting there thinking, well, because you didn't ask politely. Uh, and, and, and that's what we need to do um, is some, just come to him and ask. There's another, another passage in 2 Kings, um, a little bit earlier. at 2 Kings chapter 6, and it deals with the prophet Elisha. And he was under the skin of a king of Syria. So the king of Syria sent um, horses and chariots and a great army to the city where Elisha was, and Elisha's there, and he has a servant, and the servant of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, there's an army with chariots and horses all around the city, and the servant says to Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them there's an interlude here where the servant looks around and says, there ain't nobody here but you and me. Like, there's nobody with us, and there's a whole lot of them. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That is one of the most awesome passages in the Bible, and I love it because it says when we don't think God's doing stuff, God is doing stuff all around us, even if we can't see it, he's at work. Let i give you one more of my favorite passages. This is in Acts chapter 12. By the time you get to Acts chapter 12, they're in Jerusalem, but things are getting dicey. Stephen has been killed. James has been killed. Peter's in prison again, and it says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. So the church is having a prayer meeting, and they're praying for Peter because he's in jail well an angel breaks peter out of jail and he's out on the street and he goes to the house where he knows they're having this prayer meeting Um, and he and he knocks on the door and a servant girl named rhoda comes to the door and it says recognizing peter's voice in her joy she didn't open the gate but ran in and reported that peter was standing at the gate and so peter's like hey open the door the cops are coming and rhoda goes back And it's like, hey, Peter's here. And Peter's like, yeah, but the cops are coming. like, you got to let me in, you know. And the people respond, you are out of your mind. This is so great. They're praying for Peter who's in jail. And Rhoda says he's at the door. And they say, that's impossible. He's in jail. That's why we're praying for him because he's in jail, duh. Like he can't be at the door. And she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. Now think about what you have to do to double down on that. It can't possibly be the case that God answered our prayer and Peter's at the door. Uh, It must be, and it's easier to presume that it's an angel than that God answered this prayer. We're so thick. We're so thick, and prayer is so hard for us at times. And Peter continued knocking, and when they opened it, they saw him and were amazed. God is at work. Um the privilege of being a the pastor is knowing so many stories and getting to see where God's at work and so I can look out and you know but like I know a little bit more about where God's been at work and in all the ways that God's been at work but it's so easy to forget the ways that God's worked. we start our staff meetings on Tuesdays with good news and we started doing this a few years ago because we realized we went straight to the problems <laughs> And we would talk about them more than we would pray about them. And so we just got in a discipline. And it's kind of an awkward, hard discipline because it takes us a while to think about the good news because our mind gravitates to the problems. And the good news are the places that God's at work. When we were in Nicaragua, they did the same thing with their staff meeting. They started with celebrations of the things that God is doing. One of the greatest habits you could get in is just to remind yourself on a daily basis of the places where God has been and is at work in your lives and to be thankful for it. God's at work. God's at work. God's at work for good. God's at work for good. This can be hard. I have a, um, had a, gr- a great uncle, um, my, my grandmother's sister's husband, and um, we never, we never saw them much, Lil and Bud, because when he was a young man, which is in the 40s or 50s, he moved from the Midwest, from Chicago, moved his family out to Idaho when nobody was moving to Idaho. I don't think there was anybody in Idaho in the 50s. And he was a dentist and just decided he wanted to go live out west. So we didn't see him much. We saw him a couple times when I was a kid. And once when I was adult, we got to hang out with, um, with him on a vacation. And, and I was in my mid-late 20s. It was the week between when I quit my corporate job and I was going on staff at a church. So I was just going into ministry. And so Bud and I got in this conversation about faith. And um, he told me that when he was in, it's probably about 30, he had a young family of his own. A, he um, was either a friend or a, um, you know, someone that also worked in his field in, in their town, Caldwell, Idaho, had a six-year-old child that died. And at the funeral, the, the pastor used this verse, that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love God and is called, are called according to his purpose. And, and must have used it in such a way that Bud felt like he was dismissive of the pain that his friend was going through, or like, I I don't know, that the pastor was letting God off the hook. And he said that was, that was the moment where he kind of wrote off the whole thing. And that, that's 20, 25 years ago when I had this conversation with Bud, and I've never forgotten it, uh. Now, maybe there's other things in that, you know what I mean? He, he didn't, Bud didn't come across as, a, as someone who was angry or bitter or looking for a reason to dismiss God. Um, it just seemed to hit him that way. Uh, you, gotta be, you gotta be careful the way that you use this verse. God isn't saying that all things are good, but God is good. And when God works, God works for good. And he's not glossing over the bad. Um, And so so don't accuse God of and like don't say don't let people accuse God of minimizing or not understanding your suffering. Because the cross doesn't let us do that. God himself suffered intentionally of his own volition on our behalf. The greatest good that God did, the gospel, came at the cost of his greatest pain, his son on the cross. God is at work. God is at work for good, but that does not mean that all things are good. And nobody knows that better than God. Now, God is at work for good in all things. Um, One pastor said, nothing is beyond the overriding, overruling scope of God's providence. And that's true. And that's hopeful. Um, And a lot of the all things are things that we're culpable for. And Romans has said that. Life has told us that. That we're responsible for the bad, but God can use the bad. Some of these things are, it's easier to see and it's more benign. And some of them are harder. So I had a period in my life I, um, someone explained the gospel to me and I received that when I was in high school and surrendered to Christ. I had a period of time and in and right after college, um, where, where I, had, I had God at arm's length at best. And um, I had some doubts. I had some questions um, that I didn't, either didn't know how to or didn't want to deal with. I did some significant sinning during that time. Uh, but I can look back on those years, and it didn't take long, and see how God wove all of that like back into my story and so uh, when i was when i was at the end of college just out of college um, me and another guy that i'd gone to college with that was a few years older started a company and we ended up um, getting it going and meeting with a couple guys that were like our parents age and that ended up we got the interest of a a bigger company that got us moved down here uh, to raleigh that was largely motivated by ego um, but i look back at that whole experience and see how God used it. There was a co- one of those older guys that was a coworker. He and his wife were super faithful Christians and were marriage mentors to me before I even met my wife and said things to me that still ring in my ears and things that I've used in most of the wedding ceremonies I've done over time. God used that experience to move me in a really dramatic way, an obvious way from Columbus uh, to Raleigh for reasons that he had in mind. My, um, my dad growing up was... He was a marketing guy for General Electric and then ran a small medical technology company for about 10 years. And so that stuff was in my blood, and I, and I feel like I got that out of my system early in my 20s so that I didn't spend my life wondering, well, what if I'd gone down that road because God sent me down that road early? And at the same time, I think God used all that to prepare me to run a, the small company that is a church. Um, all that stuff I can look back on and think, I don't know how he did that but he wove it all back in. Um, and I, I came to think God just does that. And if you are following Christ, you can make really bad decisions and God will always work them back in. Um, it may take him longer, like the worse the decision is, it may be the longer that it takes him to weave that back into your story, but we're never going to make perfect decisions and he's always going to be able to weave it back in. Some of those things like are semi-miraculous, you know, but 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 benign compared to other things. Because for some people, when it says God is at work for good in all things, all things, all things is hard. Um, There are people in here who have chronic illnesses. There are people in here who have been sexually abused. People who have lost children to suicide, people who have lost relatives to cancer, people who have lost babies to miscarriage. This verse is so heavy. All things is so heavy. Um, Bobby Joe and I went and saw The Sound of Freedom. It was the movie that came out a few weeks ago um, about a guy that fights against, you know, kids that are trafficked for sex. And uh, there's some controversy around the guy that I haven't quite figured out. The story in the movie, I think, is a completely legitimate story. I've heard him talk about it. It's two kids that, it's like the first rescue that he and his team did. And he said that the, um, there's a little boy in the film and said he came across the story because his job was to um, convict, to build the case against sex offenders. And so he had to watch hours of video of this kid being abused. All things is something that I'm, like, I can't say I understand that. I can believe it, but, like, there's such a weight to that. Um, and at the middle of it is the cross. I mean, is the cross Good. I mean, it is. We have it. We wear it around our necks, wear it in their ears. We have it hanging on our things. People get it tattooed on them. Um, but it was an innocent man brutally murdered. It, the cross is a little bit different because it was necessary. But God takes not good things and uses them for good. Uh, the story in the, of Joseph in the Bible is, is you know, maybe the best story of that. Joseph is the, one of the sons of Jacob, second youngest son of Jacob. Uh, his brothers end up selling him into slavery. Uh, after a couple of them just wanted to kill him, he ends up trafficked to Egypt. He, en- he ends up getting falsely accused of raping his boss's wife and then gets unjustly imprisoned. And none of those things are good. It wasn't good for him to be an arrogant, obnoxious kid. It's not good for your brothers to plot to kill you and settle on selling you. It's not good to have a slave trade that can get you down to Egypt. It's not good to be falsely accused of a sexual assault and unjustly imprisoned. And the emotions at the end of that story in the Bible are some of just the highest. Um, It's a great read. The end of uh, Genesis and that story of Joseph because of All of this that has gone into it. And at the end, Joseph says, You meant it for evil, but, and this is even a step further, God meant it for good. God takes bad things and weaves them in. But that is not easy. There's a line I heard um, years ago, and it's from a Greek poet. Uh, This is not from the Bible qualify that um it was robert f kennedy used it at martin luther king jr's funeral and it's this even in our sleep pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of god and i think a lot of times that's what it feels like um God doesn't want you to have to revise history and call something that was bad, good. I think God calls evil, evil in the Bible. He calls injustice, injustice. He calls sin, sin. But God does want you to be able to move beyond it. He wants you to be able to to grieve loss. And some of that grief you may carry every day for the rest of your life. Hopefully to like lesser and lesser degrees. But some grief is like that. But he doesn't want grief to be your reality, your sole reality, your primary reality, your dominant reality. Like, he doesn't want you to have to live in a constant state of grief. He wants hope to be that reality. And hope and grief can coexist. God is at work for good in all things. Now, he's in He's at work for good in all things for those who love him. And, uh, and this is a hard verse. Because that means that God is not at work for good in all things for those who don't love God. Now God loves everyone, right? And that's, he does. Um, but not everyone loves God. And Paul's been clear with this throughout Romans that all of us were at one point enemies of the cross. Um, we were living in opposition. We might have been polite to God, but we were living in opposition to God. We were functionally enemies of God. We didn't love God. We might have been nice to God. We might have pretended, but we didn't. And so God is, it worked for good and all things for those who love God. Um, and the best thing that God might could do for those who don't love him is to not work all things for their good. And and a lot of us know this personally, so that things go badly in their lives, so badly that they realize how much they need him. Then God works for good in all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so at the end of this, we come to according to his purpose. And let me bring back up the line from um, the little passage about the spirit interceding for us. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit even intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, according to the will of God according to his purpose. The hard thing about all of these things is highlights our lack of control. Um, But in the midst of what he's doing at the end of chapter 8 is reassuring, reassuring us that he is the one who is in control. And so he goes on and says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justifies. And those whom he justified, he glorified. I promise you, when it comes to predestination in two weeks, I'm going to take all of chapter nine at once, and that's where Paul addresses this question, so I will talk about predestination and election and free will and and what all that means. It's not the point of this week. The point this week is that God is the one that is in control, and God is working according to God's purposes. And So God is the one who foreknew. Um, It doesn't just mean he knows everybody. We know he knows everybody. He's God. He knows all things, but he set his love on. Uh, There's a point... In the Gospels where Jesus said, people will come to him and say, away, he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. Like, I never had relationship with you. And you and God, that, it is about a relationship between the two of you. So those who he foreknew, he predestined, he predetermined a destination for us. And the way he puts it in this verse, the destination isn't a place, it's a state of being that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Going back to the beginning of chapter 8, the righteous requirement of the law is going to be fulfilled in us by the Spirit. We are going to become like Christ because He is going to make us like Christ. And in that, He is going to make us the type of people that make sense in heaven. And heaven is just being in the presence of God. And so He is going to conform us to the image of His Son so that we could be with Him forever. Because that's what it will take, is for us to be conformed to the image of His Son. No, He predestined, He called, um, those he called, he justified. That's what most of Romans has been about. And those he justified, he glorified. And so he's going to complete the plan. I mentioned last week an essay. Um, there was a sermon by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory, and I sent it out in the weekly this week. Um, it takes a bit. C.S. Lewis takes a bit, for me at least. I have to read him a couple times before I get what he's saying. But it's an unbelievable essay. And over the years, I've read it a handful of times and marked up different sections of it. And as I read it through again this week, I thought he, he connects the beginning of chapter eight with the end of chapter eight. He connects the idea of the affirmation of God with the idea of the glory of God and says the glory of God is really this affirmation fully realized. Um, and man, that is critical to our, to our becoming like Jesus, our sanctification. And so um, Lewis, who's British, you know, talks about the biblical language of crowns and glory, and says this at first just makes no sense. It's like watching the coronation of King Charles on TV. Like, what are these people doing anymore? You know, and he but he says it's because like it almost seems like it's uh, like it's getting one up on somebody else, like winning a contest. Um, that it's talking about glory in a horizontal context, like more glory than you. You know, instead of glory in a vertical context about what that means when we get glory from God. And too often, honestly, we as Christians treat the idea of heaven as like a vertical contest where we won or we were right. Um, I remember an interview that I read in Rolling Stone a couple years ago when Mike Huckabee, if you remember him, was running for president. And And Rolling Stone asked him about the end times. And he said, well, I don't know how it all works. I just know that in the end we win. And the Rolling Stone guy wrote in the article it's like I don't know what that means either, but I guess if he wins, he thinks the rest of us lose. Um, and too often we think about it like that way. And Lewis says it's not meant to be that way. It's meant to be at something we understand as glory, as something we receive uh, from the Lord. He says apparently what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the most, hum- the humblest, most childlike, most creaturely of pleasures, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of the inferior the pleasure of a beast before men, right? Um, My dog thinks that I think he is the greatest dog in the history of the world, you know? What is that sign that says, Lord, make me the person that my dog thinks that I am? Like, that is the pleasure of the inferior, a beast before men, a child before his father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. Um, The pleasure is found when the superior approves of you, Um, when you surrendered to the one who's made you and loves you most, when you receive that affirmation. Uh, He says, the sense that in this universe we're treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. Like this hole that we have within us, that's part of our inconsolable secret. And he says, glory is this, it meant good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of all things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. That's the glory that Paul's talking about. He says has happened, and we live into that reality. He says, he finishes, apparently our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we've only seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And so he takes the beginning that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the affirmation of the Father who sees us in light of what the Son has done for us. And so that is going to come to the point where we experience that in its fullness, and we will receive the glory that Christ has earned for us. And it's what we're made for and what we long for the most. We are going to, um, we have a few songs um, to finish our service with, with worship. We're going to be offering uh, communion. And so the way we do this at Oak City Church is we'll have a couple people up here that will have the bread and the cup and um, and we would invite you during these next few songs, um, if, you have, if you've accepted who Jesus is and what he's done for you, this is like what we do in remembrance of what he's done for us. We do this in remembrance of the fact that because of the work of Christ, there's no condemnation. Because of the work of Christ, we have this promise of a coming glory because he's earned it for us. And so it's his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. And it's a way that he called us um, as his followers to remember. If, you, if you're not there yet, please feel no pressure to come up here and receive communion. It wouldn't make sense for you to do that um, if you're not there yet with Jesus. But if you are, then we invite you during these next few minutes to do that. And one person will be standing here with the bread and say, this is um, the body of Jesus broken for you. And, And you don't have to respond to that. You can say, thanks be to God. You can say, amen. You can say whatever you want. And then another person will be here with the cup. And it's our way of remembering what Jesus has done for us. Father, thanks for, thanks that you, um, You meet us in the midst of our deepest um, pains, our deepest anxieties, our deepest struggles, our deepest questions. Um, you You don't run from those. I don't think you tell us to run from those. You tell us that you'll meet us right in the midst of them, Lord. And I know we all have those, God. And then right after that, you follow up by saying that you were at work in all things and all things can be really, really hard. And you were at work for the good of those who love you and who have been called according to your purpose, God. Sometimes that is the, the best news we can receive and other times it is really hard news to receive, Lord. But it is your truth and it's what you've given us. And we receive it, Lord. I pray that you would speak into our hearts in the places and the ways that we need to hear about the things you're doing in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.